out there, rock and rollers, and welcome to the 28th episode of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast, recorded right here in central London, just off Abbey Road. We hope you liked the last episode on ACDC Live. We're going to take a turn more to the prog rock side again and review an album that has really grown on us here recently over the years in getting to know Steve Hackett. And of course, we do two episodes. Episodes five and six are on Steve Hackett and his days in Genesis and those heady, proggy days of the early to mid-70s for Genesis. But we decided to go in-depth this week on Selling England by the Pound, the 1973 album made by Genesis, praised as really maybe their best output. Certainly praised as Steve Hackett's really coming out as an incredible proggy guitar player. But really great contributions by every member of the band. Peter Gabriel is on his best vocally and contributing some solid lyrics. Tony Banks is a whiz on the keys. Mike Rutherford's doing double time as both bass player and 12-string player. Of course, we mentioned Hackett. And of course, Phil Collins, who was an incredible drummer in his day, really shines on this album. And he gets to sing lead vocals on one song, maybe a, an omen, a portend of things to come later in his career. But this is a very English album. And it's not one that we ever heard really growing up in America. Classic rock radio doesn't play any of the early Genesis stuff. It really kind of picks up with Then There Were Three era, when Follow You, Follow Me kind of became a hit. And this is really overlooked, certainly in America. There's lots of hardcore fans all over the world, in England, in the U.S., and around the world, who love this music. And there are tribute bands out there who play just this stuff because so many people want to hear it. So we're going to take our take on it here. Now, as usual, if you want to hear all our old episodes, go to www.uglyamericanwerewolf.libsyn.com and please download and subscribe on Amazon, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And please give us a shout out or a follow on Twitter at ugly underscore werewolf or at actionjack72. Let's take a look at the classic Genesis release selling England by the pound here on The Wolf. Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. 
So Selling England by the Pound came out about the same time we did. Not not a huge hit in America. I mean, I think it sold well, but the, the songs didn't really get on the radio. They didn't embed into classic rock radio that we listened to growing up because we never heard any of these songs growing up. So it's something you have to kind of go out and find. You have to learn about the band and then have an older brother or cousin or somebody, babysitter, whomever, to uh, to turn you on to it. And so we didn't come to it till later in life uh, as we started getting into more progressive rock and discover the virtues of Steve Hackett and Genesis pre-fill behind the mic. And I don't know, I, I think it's an amazing album. It's, it's about the best prog album, certainly at that time. And a lot of people say it is the quintessential Genesis album. It's the best of the Peter Gabriel years. And certainly the one Steve Hackett made his big outing on. Yeah, I will have to start the show off with a disclaimer and say this this was never in my wheelhouse growing up. Uh-huh. I had never heard any of these songs uh, until we started to do a little research for the show. And I, I would agree with you. I think it is one of the best prog rock albums ever only because it's, I mean, the songs are great, but it's also accessible for being this massive thing. They, oh, they give you enough breaks from mm-hmm. the real proggy, heavy-duty stuff that you can listen to it. And I agree with you. I think this this was Genesis at their height with the the kind of the classic lineup. Steve's on it. Tony's on it. Phil's playing great. You've got Mike Rutherford kind of doing his thing behind, you know, bass, 12-string, whatever they need. And then Peter Gabriel on the vocals. It's just interesting that for us who came into Genesis with the Genesis record mm-hmm. and then Peter Gabriel on So, this is not that. This is something totally different. Totally different. And it's like they kept it from us in America, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think I think it's, I mean, and I think we've talked about this before. We're just not equipped in America, most people, to handle this stuff. We are three minutes and 38 seconds, intro, intro, chorus, solo, back to a little bit of chorus, and then you're done. Right. This is not, this is too heavy duty for mainstream uh, American taste. That's right. For the average American, uh, for the mass America, Mm -hmm. it's obvious why something like Dancing with the Moonlit Night wasn't going to go up the charts. You know, it's it's obvious the cinema show isn't going to get played a lot on the radio, not just because of its length, but because of the subject matter and some of the time changes. Progressive rock to me is a very English subgenre. Doesn't mean we don't have any American progressive rock, and I think it's grown over the decades. But in the 70s, when it kind of was in its heyday with bands like Pink Floyd and Yes and King Crimson and these guys, Genesis, doing their thing, and some others, you can name a lot of them. ELP, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer certainly fit in that mold. It's Thinking Man's music. They have long, extended songs that won't be pop radio friendly, could be AOR friendly, but even if they're 15 minutes, even the AOR stations are going to lay off them to some extent. Yes, and the cool part to me is that it's not just guitar-driven. There's a lot, there's, I mean, the guitar parts are fantastic in it, but... You've got the drums uh, play a very uh, integral part. The keyboard, I mean, and that's that's kind of like the prog signature is mm-hmm. your keyboard part to this. And then the bass and then the vocals laid on top of it. Again, there, there's not a whole lot of, it's it's more like a classical piece of music where all the instruments are supporting each other instead of having one be the centerpiece support around it. Yeah, I, that's absolutely right. Our American rock and roll, our DNA is basically guitar, maybe two guitars. The rock guitar, nothing changed rock and roll more than the advent or invent 
of the electric guitar. That changed it for America, changed it for the world, changed it for the Beatles. But incorporating the keyboard, I think, is the signature part of progressive rock, and every big prog band has some kind of killer keyboard player, whether it be Rick Wakeman in Yes, or Rick Wright in Pink Floyd, Keith Emerson, Emerson Lake and Palmer, and in this case, Tony Banks. And Tony, you know, Tony, I think Tony is kind of the centerpiece of Genesis, really. He, he's always been in the band. He is the guy who gets the most material on there. You see, all these songs are written by Genesis as a group. There's no one single writer. But if you watch the video, the some of the parts, you know, they say, and Tony readily admits that sometimes the person who gets the most on the record is the one who shouts the loudest. And I guess that's me. So you have me to blame or to love for the music. And I think he thinks you should love him. And he's done a lot of work outside of Genesis. Look, all these guys have had solo careers. His has been the least successful, I would say, from a sales standpoint, especially when you factor in Peter Gabriel and Phil Collins were so huge. Mike and the Mechanics had some huge big hits on both sides of the Atlantic. And Hackett has been a solo artist for 45 years, you know, and, and so he's sold so many records. Tony has done some just classical pieces and just piano pieces, but it's his output that really, I don't know, I, it, it's what drives all of this, I feel like. All the long ones basically start with some kind of Tony keyboard piano figuration there and uh and it's i think it's where he really shines yeah and he's the, the kind of the, the quick history of genesis i mean it was it was banks uh gabriel and rutherford who were the the, the original three so yeah tony has always had his hand on guiding the way the band where the direction of the band you know people come in people come out but yes he's always kind of beating the guy in the back but i mean the other thing too is these guys are all in Mm -hmm. Right. So you listen to them talk. There is no there is no Steven Tyler of this band. There is no look at me, look at me, look at me. They're all just very reserved. If you didn't know who they were, you'd think it was just some guy that worked at a bank or, you know, an accountant or something. They're very reserved people. Mm -hmm. But yet they can they can come up with this music, I think, more in like a committee kind of thing instead of having somebody just having to have everything on there. But I think, I think maybe just in going and doing research for this, Tony was the one that kind of always had the more of the vision of this is where we're going with this band. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And yeah, he and Rutherford and Gabriel all went to Charterhouse, a very posh uh, English, we would call it a private school in America, but they call them public schools here. And they were the, the band uh, at their school. And, you know, their first record from Genesis to Revelation, which, I, you know, I don't think was a great record. But for a bunch of teenagers, it's, it's, it was pretty, pretty good. You know, they made one more trespass with the original band. And then they got Anthony Phillips, who was their good friend and originally maybe the best musician of them all. He left because he was having some wicked stage fright. I guess playing live was not really his thing. So they had to get someone else in and they found Steve Hackett, who was brilliant. And they also replaced their drummer with this guy named Phil Collins, uh, who had been in, uh, you know, a, a band before, uh, you know, a professional band. And so getting him in, and Peter Gabriel will say, getting this guy in was great because he is a professional. He, he wasn't just, you know, doing this to get out of going to college or to get out of working in a bank 
which is kind of what the, the private school guys were like, no, mom and dad, I'm not going to. I'm going to give it a shot as making it as a band. Because they always had something else to fall back on, I guess. Yeah, getting Phil Collins in and his humor, obviously, always helps because the rest of them were so serious and they'd known each other for so long and they didn't want each other getting away with too much. So to have someone like Phil come in and break the ice, I think it probably helped the dynamics a bit. And you can really tell that he is, unfortunately for somebody like, for us, you you don't see Phil Collins as a drummer. You see him as the front guy, mm-hmm. you know, out doing his own records. He's a phenomenal drummer and he gets to really do some interesting things on this record, change up time, add to the mix without going too far. Uh, yeah, he's, he's a much better musician than he gets credit for. Uh, with the every all the success that he's had. That's absolutely true. He's totally underrated as a drummer. And we never really saw him play the drums, you know. And when he was at Live Aid with Led Zeppelin, he was I think he was the only guy to play both coats. He, he played Wembley early, jumped on the Concord, got to Philadelphia to play with Led Zeppelin. And much to Jimmy's chagrin, Jimmy said, you know, Phil said he knew this stuff. He really didn't. And, and, it, and Led Zeppelin didn't look that great at Live Aid. But yeah, no, Phil's a good drummer and he didn't really want to become a singer necessarily but he always harmonized with Peter you can hear it on these records especially during some of the choruses and things like that you can hear him harmonizing with Peter and he does get his shot on this on this record as a lead singer for the first time yeah and and it's interesting to think about going back to 73 now oh, okay yeah give this guy a chance yeah let him sing one song I mean he's just the drummer but I mean maybe he could sell a hundred million copies of his own <laughs> solo record someday no, sounds crazy. Sounds crazy. It's just interesting to, to see after the, after the you already know how the story ends. To go back and look at this now and say they had just no idea what they had in this guy as far as being a rock star, and that was probably a product of the '80s too, where you could have a guy who maybe didn't look the part, <laughs> but had the chops as a musician and a songwriter and a vocalist mm-hmm. to put these records out. Well, and an actor too, because suddenly you're in the '80s and you have to be an actor. You have to do videos. And your interviews are on MTV, national, international, global TV, you know, and he's up for it. He's got the personality. You know, he went to the Barber Speak stage and acting school when he was a kid, you know, so it wasn't just his musical ability, but also his personality really came through as well. And that obviously helped take them to to new heights in the late 70s and, and throughout the 80s. But at this point... In the 70s, the band, and this, I think we've spoken about this before, this is their third album as this lineup, and it's the third album that's really the one that kind of makes or breaks you, right? I mean, it's got your whole life to write your first album. The second one, the sophomore, is usually not that good because you've got a condensed time, maybe three to six months to write it while you're touring, while you're getting studio time here and there. But by the third time, you should have gelled and matured enough and found your sound, and either you're going to go on from there or the band might just break up. Fifth album for the band, but third for this incredible quintet. And here they are, they find themselves examining, you know, what does it mean to be English? You know, what is happening in the UK right now? What's going on culturally? What's going on politically? What's going on with our lifestyles, right? Because Americanization was creeping in, and, you know, the the local markets... We're being overtaken by the super 
markets, thus putting a lot of mom and pop butchers and bakers and and, and farmers, you know, uh, vegetable growers. You know, you had a you had a nice uh, vegetable stand that people came to for forty years, and then all of a sudden, well, now there's a supermarket. Don't need the vegetable stand anymore, right? Yeah, and I think the the other problem with this dynamic is that for so long England had been the center of the universe Mm -hmm. they had I mean they had colonized everything they could get their hands on they were the ones who imparted their culture onto other parts of the world now other things like you mentioned America was starting to creep in I mean we were just the lowly colonies and now all of a sudden we're in a position of power so yeah I think there were people who who were very nervous about what was happening was the English way of life going to go away was this all just going to be homogenized and to one thing but i think the problem is you had old people that were not that were afraid of this but then maybe younger people were like no this is really cool we love you know rock and roll and coca-cola and hamburgers and everything else that's american so yeah it, there was this big it, almost like you're standing on the edge of a cliff what, what's going to happen here right yeah and they had things uh some things are going on kind of the same way now with immigration. You had uh, folks coming in from other parts of the empire, sometimes from Caribbean nations. Obviously, they would have black skin, and England is an incredibly white country. And so then there's friction about that. Also, yeah, England kind of ruled the world to the early part of the 20th century. Then after the two wars, especially World War II, England was very, and especially in London, was very bombed out. And all these guys, well, I mean, the guys who went to Charterhouse probably grew up in in nice homes and maybe even estates, but all this generation was used to growing up around rubble. You know, there were buildings that would be rubble for decades. I mean, it was into the 60s before they really even cleaned everything up in in England and around the UK. And some things were just left to rot because there was no point in rebuilding them. So all of a sudden, yes, you've had to take some lumps with these horrible wars, you've lost men. Uh, you know, families were irretrievably broken apart. The infrastructure was broken up pretty well. And now culturally, you're being inundated. And kind of the pastoral English life that maybe J.R. Tolkien is talking about, like the hobbits, I think that's kind of what he, he's talking about. Like you're separated from everything. You have this lush little green spot. You like to have a beer. You like to eat your food. You're with your family. And it's changing into a more modern world. Um, and I think that's part of what they're grasping with here when, you know, he starts acapella. Can you tell me where my country lies? Yeah, and, and even things like rock and roll, which, I mean, the Beatles, they're the quintessential English rock band. But it came from America. The idea came from America. So I think even... Even that was like, oh, yes, this is something that came from here, but it, the idea was somewhere else, and you're polluting us. So yeah, I can see how they never, they never sell, they never, there is no song selling England by the pound. But the first line of the first song, "The Moonlit Night," is yeah, where where is this going? What's happening? I don't recognize this place anymore. And selling England by the pound is a very nice tongue-in-cheek title. And I guess the Labor Party had adopted it during some 74 elections, you know, saying, hey, you're getting rid of all the mom-and-pop stores. You're bringing in these big chain things, you know, these big corporate things, and it's changing our world. And when it talks about your wimpy dreams, it's actually talking about a hamburger chain, wimpy chain, you know, which is probably where they all got their first fast food burger, you know, before they ever went to McDonald's. Uh, and, you know, it, it is a dichotomy between the old guard. Look, in England, if you're an old white person, you're just like, you listen to me. 
Because that's the way it is. You listen to your betters. You listen to rich, old, white people. That's what you do. Whereas the young man's like, I don't think I need to listen to you anymore. You do not represent me necessarily. It's really kind of the first time. It was happening in America, too, with the big hippie movement and counterculture. Kids are like, I'm not just going to do something because you told me to. I'm going to do something my own way. And I think the other thing, too, was that for years in England, you had a station in life. Mm -hmm. Like, you were born to the station you were never going to be I mean you can work hard your whole life and that's great good for you but you were never going to move past this and so now I think you've got the maybe I could maybe I could do something else you know we talked about on the Duran Duran show Roger Taylor Mm -hmm. talking about how his dad was a laborer in the rover factory and everybody just thought he was going to do that you know as he's driving through Birmingham in a hundred thousand dollar Aston Martin he (laughs) he said I'm not doing that I want to do something different I can do something else now so yeah to your point it's just everything is changing and yeah the old white people maybe they're not so authoritarian anymore yeah 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 there's a whole other world happening here man we're we're gonna go see what's going on that's right yes so genesis explores all this and you know it's a very proggy record and it's kind of like every other song is either a long prog song or a short poppy or poppy er i should say song getting into the dancing with the moonlit night again this is more instead of just lyrics like it's you know it, it it's verse chorus second verse chorus bridge solo chorus fade this is kind of poetry and it's not all that easy to sing it's not just in like two stanzas or whatever couplets some of it is well you have to play the music around it and then he has to find the spots to stick it in there but conjuring up these images of england some with double entendre i don't know it it paints a picture it tells a story and the time change especially when steve comes in with his guitar a couple times it's pretty heavy mix that in with all tony's noodling all around there long song well i know i know one of the things that phil collins was talking about both on moonlit night and also later on in the battle of effing forest there are so many lyrics from Gabriel in here that Mm -hmm. there really isn't a lot of room to to groove there. You've got a very tight space to fit in and you've got to kind of explore that. You're right. It's not, it's not a traditional song that we're used to. It's more like a poem with music behind it. And then in the true prog spirit, they switch gears and go into that heavier part in the middle. Mm -hmm. And then the guys can, especially Tony and Steve can really kind of shine there. And I think, and Phil does a good job on this one too, but this isn't really his, this isn't his chance to really step out yet. But yeah, this is a, this is a complex even though it's eight minutes and four seconds, there's a lot of stuff going on in this where you don't get like, you don't get bored. Yeah, you, you have to sit and listen to this. This isn't generally speaking casual listening. Maybe it is after you've heard it 50 times, but you have to tune in to really get this. And I guess Tony Banks wrote the lyrics and he said he didn't really love them. I guess Rutherford helped him a bit with them. He's like, eh, I was trying to do something about a river and then I kind of got uh, sideways track. I don't know. He, he downplays it a little bit. But it's an amazing way to open an album and lots going on there for sure. I, you know, and I look, some of these words, I mean, I, not just this song, but it's like, I, I didn't, our last show was on ACDC. I didn't have to go to the dictionary for any of the words in the ACDC lyrics. You know, I, I'd never heard the word undyno before. I'm like, what are they even talking about? It's a water nymph for a mermaid. I mean, once I read the rest of the lyrics around it, it made sense. Once I understood it, I'm like, wow, you know, this is not, you know, you're just uh, pop a cold one and woohoo, it's party time. This is this is a composition that requires some listening. Right. And, and 
works better if you if you really concentrate. It's, it's better off with the headphones on. I can't imagine in 1973 a hi-fi mono speaker deal could handle all of this. So you were better off with the headphones on, sitting in a basement somewhere, just really paying attention to what was going on here. It's not a it's not put it on in the background of a party unless you've unless you've heard it a million times. You right. really need to get into this thing. That's right, and this is a long album. I mean, it's it's 53, I think, more than 53 minutes long, which is long for an LP. Certainly back then, I think Peter said maybe that hurt some of the mix. I don't know if they had to mix it differently, just squeeze it all on there. I'm not sure. But there's a reason why most records are in the 40 to 46 minute range. But they do shift gears straight to the second song, I Know What I Like. This was a single. And it went into the British charts, you know. And again, it's kind of talking about maybe a laborer talking about what he likes to do uh, and doesn't need someone telling him, you know, about it. It, it, it kind of represented by the lawnmower that they added in to the painting on the cover but yeah it, it's only four minutes long that's obviously a little more pop it's a nice change this one's a nice change of pace because the first one is so intense mm-hmm. um the what the the thing that i like about this is if you listen to it i this is my personal feeling i think at the beginning phil collins is he's throwing in that signature ringo star kind of swing that 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 it might not be but it sounds very ringo star tip of the cap because i know he was a big fan he swears up and down he was in uh, a hard day's night in one of the uh one of the big crowd scenes so yeah a little like i said a little tip of the cap well he should ringo doesn't get enough credit for what he did with the beatles an amazing drummer had that swing really kept it all together and there was a b-side to this twilight alehouse which i just heard for the first time preparing for this show it was uh, never on an album it's a b-side i guess it was done during the foxtrot sessions but it didn't fit on the record so it was laying around and they said okay we'll put it on the b-side of this and it's good there's this odd thing at the end when they're making this weird noise for like the last 20 seconds like were, were you just trying to make it sound bad we we're trying to convince everybody this is definitely a b-side but other than that I think it's good. It fits in right along with the rest of the material on here. Yeah, and and it's it's it probably it's back to your point about how they just didn't have any more room on the record physically. We cannot fit anything else on a twelve-inch wax record. We're done. It's got to go somewhere else. That's right. Yeah. Well, we'll just put it in the vault, you know. And Genesis had three, I think, three nice box sets. One was sixty-seven to seventy-five, uh, and it did end up on there when they remastered it. You can get Alexa to play it for you if you want. Uh, it's worth listening or find it out there on YouTube, but. But, uh, but then, you know, the third one, to me, this is the song of the album, Firth of Fifth, which I guess is a take on the River Fourth. You know, Firth of Fourth, I guess, is the joke, and they made it Firth of Fifth. And this could be like what someone like Robert Criscow of the Village Voice was saying when there's too many English references, there are too many English cultural references, so it's... You, like, you didn't dumb it down enough for America. You didn't make it accessible enough for the rest of the world. But the song itself is amazing. It starts with an amazing Tony piano run. And then when Steve comes in, and everyone on the internet always says, this is where Steve really separates himself. And it almost sounds like he's playing a keyboard, you know, in some of these parts. But the sustain he holds on his Les Paul for some of these notes are really amazing. I guess he reworked some of Tony's pieces for this because parts of Firth, 
a fifth Tony presented on the last album. They're like, no, it's not just, it's not there yet. It's not ready. And then he reworked some of them and now they're like, okay, now you're on to something there. And maybe it was Steve's contributions that, that helped put it over. I would think if anybody were to ask me, you know, like it's Steve Hackett. Well, I've never heard of Steve Hackett before. You know, who is he? What's he all about? I would say fourth and fifth. There you go. Listen to that and then come back and talk to me. Because th- this is his kind of his signature tune. The one that, uh, you know, the number one on the resume. Unfortunately, again, for him, he's not an Angus Young. He's not a Keith Richards, but he's a very adept guitar player. He's not super flashy. Right. He's super technical. He's just just a true musician. And he and when he needs to, he can hit the gas. But I think he he again he fits himself into the band. That it's not all about him. No, you're right. And Tony is obviously kind of sees himself as the leader of the band, taking them direction, getting the most stuff together on songs. If he had a flashy Eddie Van Halen or somebody like that who wants to be out front, it probably wouldn't have worked. Um, but right. because Steve is so reserved and can play whatever he needs to play, I think that gave Tony some confidence. Like, I can give him space because they kind of occupy that same sonic space with the drums and the bass with that low register, Pete's voice in the high register, that kind of middle ground where guitars and keyboards often compete. It seems like they meld together here really well. Yeah, and you're right. There are a couple times where you, you have to wait a minute. Wait, wait, was that the guitar or was that the keyboard? Yeah, they kind of they kind of merge and, and hand off very well in this. And again, you were if you listen to this on the stereo, you weren't gonna get this. This was headphone material all the way. Yeah, and they, they continue to play it forever. I don't know that they ever stopped playing it. And when Daryl Sterner joined the band as well, guitarist or bassist, whatever Mike Rutherford wasn't playing after Steve Hackett left, he continued to play it very well too. Uh, of course, Steve, he's been touring a lot over the last 15 years, ever since they got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. His touring has been, uh, you know, pretty consistent and all over the world, including making new stuff. But he really does revisit Genesis quite a bit on the road, and sometimes he will do an entire album. And a couple of years ago, he did Selling England by the Pound in its entirety. And, and so he's, he's the one doing it. I mean, look, Genesis only toured once in the last 30 years. They're trying to do it the second time, and, and right now it's on for this fall. I have a feeling it's going to be pushed to 2022, but right now it's on for this fall. And you'll get a couple of these old ones, but mostly it's going to be, and then there were three on. But he has license to do it. He has authenticity, and he does it incredibly well. And so to get any of his live albums over the last few years where he does this, I definitely pick it up and definitely try to see him on the road as well, too. Yeah, he's definitely, Steve's the one who's carrying the torch for the classic Genesis stuff. And, and you're right, he can still play it with the band. It sounds great. You'd love to see Genesis do it, but I think they've moved past that now mm-hmm. uh, to, to just do the hits. And I mean, let's be honest, most people that go to see a Genesis concert now, if you broke this stuff out, they'd be like, huh? What is this? I know. And, and Phil Collins isn't going to do it on his solo tours. No. Even if Peter does a couple of old Genesis songs, he's, he's only going to do a couple. He's got plenty of his own solo stuff to do. He doesn't have to do a bunch of old Genesis stuff. So uh, the way to hear this stuff live, it, it, besides a tribute band or a cover band, is, is to go see Steve Hackett and his incredible band live. All right, and then they wrap up the first side with More Fool Me. Again, now this is a short one, and it debuts the singing talents of Mr. Phil Collins. I guess he and Rutherford kind of wrote this together, um, and then he and Steve and Mike are are on it. I don't know if the other guys are really on it much, but a short one and kind of a love song-ish and not so, you'd have to look up 
a bunch of lyrics what they meant when you were doing this one. This is kind of more like a, a pop song, you know, and kind of portend of things to come for Phil. Yeah, and it's again, it's a nice, it's a nice track to come after Firth of Fifth because I mean that that's a marathon. Mm-hmm. So now you need something light. This is poppy. This was never released as a single, but it could have been. I was, I was listening to this a couple of times. Maybe Phil could do this now in a show, sneak it in there. I mean, it kind of goes along maybe with the stuff that he's got. I don't know, but he's really to me trying to sound like Peter Gabriel in this. It, even it, the first time I listened to it, it took me a minute. I'm like, hey, wait a minute. That's not that's not Peter Gabriel. That's Phil Collins. But he's singing up real high. Mm-hmm. I don't know if maybe he was like he was trying to find his way as a lead vocalist. So, you know, OK, I know Gabriel stuff works. Let me try and do that. It, yeah, it, it, it's a cool change of pace. And like we talked about at the beginning, definitely a foreshadowing of things to come as Phil being a lead singer. No doubt about it. You're right. They do sound a lot alike because I was always amazed that Steve Hackett's Lyric, uh, vocalist Nad Sylvan. Wow, he sounds a lot like Peter Gabriel. And then he'll do a Collins song. I'm like, oh, wow, he, he sounds like Phil Collins too. <laughs> uh, but that, you're right, Phil's, you know, trying to do his, his Peter Gabriel bit there. And when they harmonize, it sounds like they could just be double tracking Peter Gabriel's voice sometimes. Uh, yeah. But it is the two of them singing together and making a rich, uh, you know, it, it's it's pretty. It's not like hard rock cool. Uh, their voices are nice together. Yeah. And, and again, this is a nice, like, palate cleanse. Mm-hmm. Uh, for what's coming up next, it's it, it's it gives you a, it, it's almost like a little uh, a little rest mm-hmm. maybe because you're going you're we're going right back into the roller coaster ride here in a second. Well, that's right because side two starts with the battle of of Epping Forest, the epic battle of Epping Forest, nearly 12 minutes long. And the lyrics are, I mean, you know, I've got the CD here. I've got the 2007 remaster and they have the lyrics in the book. And, you know, most of these songs, all the lyrics fit on one page. These are three pages worth of lyrics for this song. (laughs) It's unbelievable, you know, and it's all, I guess, about, they'd seen an article in the paper about a gangland fight that they took out into the countryside, lined up all their fancy cars, and they got out and, I guess, settled a score without guns, of course, because proper gangsters, if you were worth your merit, you didn't go around shooting people. You bashed them in the side of the head with a club or fists or... You fought with your hands. You're a tough guy, so you don't need a gun. You go fight with your hands, and I guess that's what inspired this. And and there's some great characters in here that they've kind of made up with the funny names and stuff like that. And then I read a or I saw an interview with Peter Gabriel, and he was talking about. I guess he saw an article. He was interested and then went to do more research and literally couldn't find anything else. So, yeah, he just said, okay, well, I'm going to fill in the gaps with my own stuff. It's just interesting to me now that you could have a situation where it's like, well, I can't get any information on this. You can get information on anything that you want anytime. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of it kind of took on a life of its own in a historical fiction. That's right. But, I mean, it looks like or it sounds like something, you know, out of a Guy Ritchie film. You know, it's mm-hmm. like you guys got with a funny nicknames and they're going yeah. off to do the different stuff scores and the bosses are going to sit in the back while the, the lieutenants are out there you know butchering each other I suppose but you know it's it's got some time signature changes in there and and it slows down and some stuff and then in the middle it's almost like there's this side story of the reverend you know it, the reverend he came to um, when I entered the church unstained um, and there's kind of a story about him was he trying to thwart this was he was it a side story about 
about like Robin Hood? I, I don't really, I, I, I'm not sure. Yeah. It, it, and again, this is not, uh, it's really more of a poem. There is no, they, they have a little bit of a chorus, but I mean, you've got to sit there and listen to the whole thing. To me, it's like one of those uh, Brazilian steak joint places where you can't eat anymore, but they keep giving you food. I mean, this is, this is a marathon of a deal. And I can't even imagine what this was like putting this all together with the, the lyrics and the music. Like you said, the time changes, everything. And, and really, they didn't have a whole lot of time to put this record together. So I can't imagine. I mean, this must have been a marathon deal to just to get it locked in. Yeah, no, you bring up a good point there. They were supposed to do a big show at Wembley, I guess. <laughs> Somehow they couldn't print the tickets in time, which today is like, how's that even possible? I mean, you just get the just roll them off. You know, it's not that big a deal, but I guess that happened. And so they couldn't do it. And that's why we got Genesis Live because it was a way to kind of stop. Okay, well, we can't do a show and make money. Let's put out a live record, try to make some money that way. And that'll buy us time so we can make this new record. But and yes, it's, it's interesting too, because it, I saw an interview you about like the 35th remastered edition or something like that 35th year and th all of them were talking about how well remember this recording uh, experiences you know uh, being rather pleasant uh, I don't know I think if I had talked to you when you were doing it you wouldn't have said that because it sounds like this was this was a record company deal saying no you need to put out a record right now and them saying well then we need to get going on this because we don't have any material right and it wasn't easy for Steve Hackett because he's going through a divorce mm -hmm. and I guess they say he did not contribute as much in the writing of the songs, but maybe that freed him up to play a little bit more freely. And that's why so many people praise this as his greatest work and is really coming out uh, with Genesis because all the rich textures he puts in throughout all these songs are timeless. And, you know, for the first time he plays like acoustic nylon on a Genesis record here, which we'll get into the next song as well. But yeah, I mean, almost 12 minutes, the Battle of Epping Forest, it's, it's a battle to save your sanity by the end of it, you know. And then, of course, they just flip a coin to see who wins because everybody's bloodied and beaten anyway. <laughs> Right. Yeah, and, and going back to what you were saying about Steve Hackett, I, I have a I have a little bit of a hard time with it, it saying that he didn't write any of this because I kind of have a feeling that maybe the original idea might not have been his, but the guitar parts he had to do improv uh, uh, improvisation and mm -hmm. you know okay well I think if you do this I'm going to do this so I. I I think that might be kind of a misnomer that he just showed up and played notes that were already written for him. I, I, I doubt that very highly. Yeah, and that's part of why they say all songs by Genesis, right? Yeah. Because everyone's contributing. Maybe you didn't write the lyrics. Maybe you didn't bring the idea in. But, you know, when you do that certain drum bit or you're in that seven, eight times standing, that's something you're creating, right? So Yeah, there, there's nobody that's just a musician on this. There's nobody that just shows up, plays what they're supposed to, and sits in the corner. They're all, I can imagine this was a, just a massive collaborative endeavor where mm -hmm. they were all just feeding off each other. Absolutely true. And the fact of the matter is, after the ordeal, the next song is an instrumental by Steve Hackett, you know, him playing uh, those nylon strings, you know, and again, after being bludgeoned literally in the battle of epic forest <laughs> then you get a nice slow four minute after the ordeal and it is literally after the ordeal 
you need a little something. Like you say, not just a change of pace, but you need to heal a little bit. It's like, ah, let's listen to this pretty music. And obviously it's something Hackett can and has played for years on his own. But it's it's kind of amazing to me that it got on the album. When I hear about all the bickering and what goes on the album and what doesn't, the fact that he got an instrumental on is surprising to me. Yeah, I mean, and it fits. It, it fits in with everything else. I mean, I don't know how they did this originally uh, live, but if it were anything like this, I mean, I don't think Peter Gabriel would need a break after this, after so much singing. So yeah, throw an instrumental on there to just, yeah, let me walk off stage and have a quick drink of something and get back into this. Or, you know, go put his wife's dress on or go put the fox head on or... Whatever. Whatever he has to do, right? Because he... <laughs> I guess it was in the Foxtrot era is when Peter started sneaking in stuff like his wife's dress or the fox head or the, the different outfits. And, of course, Tony said it's a good thing he snuck him in because we never would have let him do it if he just asked. We'd say, no, I would have vetoed it. But once Peter started doing that, then their stage shows started to get bigger reviews. More people come started coming to the shows. And it was through into the the next album. Lamb Lies Down. Uh, the Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, which is epic, a double album, and it had this enormous stage show with all these crazy Peter Gabriel outfits. That took it to the nth degree, and then after that, the, the band broke up. But it was kind of part of the part of Genesis evolution, and and Peter Gabriel kind of finding his way as a frontman. Yeah, and definitely one of the most. He, yeah, he was kind of the one that that married the two of uh, the two ideas of having a, a stage show that you would want to see, but then also having tracks that you could listen to on their own. I know there were there were some people that they could do one or the other, and maybe it was too crazy, mm-hmm. and maybe the music was not accessible enough. Right, and that's back to we were talking about this before. The way they put it together is nice because, like for instance, if you had track the the Moonlit Night and then right into Epping Forest. No, it's, it's too much. A human being can't handle that. So they did a really good job of giving you a little bit rest, marathon rest. So, uh, yeah, this is a very, while it's a proggy record, it's very accessible if you give it a chance. You're absolutely right there. And, and then so after the ordeal, nice short song, kind of mellow, instrumental, then comes the cinema show. Oh, more than 10 and a half minutes long, almost 11 minutes again. But I really like this one. Again, you got Tony kind of showing off, doing his thing a little bit. But when Steve comes in to do his thing, that kind of takes it to another level. Again, Mike Rutherford doesn't get enough credit as a bass player because he's mostly the guitar player after Hackett left. Anytime you see those 80s MTV videos, he's usually on a guitar. Back in the day, he was primarily bass player and did a lot of 12-string stuff. But you can really hear him and Collins really grooving on this kind of stuff. Uh, and yeah. so I, I, we've said it before that I've had to grow up to really appreciate and understand bass's role in rock and roll and a lot of the records I already loved. But I hear Mike Rutherford on this more so than on his 12-string pieces. I think his bass really shines. And to me, the bass in a lot of American rock and roll is kind of an underserved, underused instrument. It kind of just thumps along with the bass drum. But you're right, in this one, it's a whole different piece that he's playing, and he and Collins work well together. You're right, if you grew up in the 80s, Mike Rutherford era, he is the guitar player. I I never saw him play the bass. 
And then he's more of a, he's more of a musician. He's the, you know, the John Paul Jones, basically, you know, what what do you need? What do you need me to do on this? 12 string? I got you. Bass, I can do that. Mm -hmm. Let everybody else do their thing. And he just, he just goes where he's needed. And obviously had huge success with Mike and the Mechanics, Mm -hmm. not singing, but writing the songs. And and they did amazingly well on both sides of the Atlantic. But the cinema show, you know, it's, it's really, it's mostly instrumental. I mean, you you have the first three or four stanzas, then they kind of go into the take a little trip back with father they repeat that last bit later on but really there's just a lot of jamming in the middle they come back to it play it again and there's just a a ton of amazing music again put on your headphones listen to it all the way through listen to what phil collins is doing listen to what mike rutherford's doing we're gonna we've always been guitar guys so we're gonna pick out steve hackett even if he might sound a little bit like a keyboard on some spots but to me because a lot of times when I was listening to this record, after I got to this point, I'm like, oh my God, I've already been bludgeoned by the Battle of Epping Forest. You know, I already loved Firth of Fifth. Dancing with the Moonlight is something to get through, you know. So by the time I got to Cinema's show, it might still be on, but I kind of tune it out. But in, in the one benefit of getting to do this second time is I went back and listened to that again, and I'm like, this is a good song. And, and there's a real nice uh, Tony Banks kind of psychedelic freak-out piano part in the middle mm-hmm. where he just kind of, you know, okay, Step back, boys. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna run here for a minute. It's pretty cool. So I think this, this is probably to me, this is the one where everybody, this whole album is where everybody gets to really shine and show you how the, the musicianship, absolutely incredible musicianship throughout the record, and then it kind of winds up with Isle of Plenty, which is really kind of a reprise of Dancing with the Moonlit Night, and it kind of goes back to the whole supermarket thing when they, you know, Tess cooperates. Of course, Tesco being the big supermarket chain and the co-op so you know a little tongue-in-cheek there and again after that long cinema show they wanted to put a bookend to the album so that's why you kind of have the reprise it's just it's gabriel talking almost in some of these parts here but you've had enough right it's it's nearly an hour long you've had four epics you've had three to three and a half shorter ones that are still making you think that are still not just you know went down to the soda shop with my baby you know it's not that kind of stuff it's real big social, cultural, environmental, economical questions, I guess, that they're they're asking and, and answering with some of this stuff, not to mention playing their faces off and making it work. You, you could, everybody could be doing crazy stuff on their own, but it is music. It does come together in kind of a really amazing way. Right. I, I agree with you. I have heard records where it's just everybody is doing, doing their own thing and it just sounds like it's just a wall of sound that's impenetrable. They do a good job fitting together and what I like about Isle of Plenty is it, you're right it bookends it it's very purposeful it's saying this is the end it's almost like a it's almost like a uh, classical concert where it's the it's you know you get the reprise and then you know okay now we're at the end of this and scene they don't they don't just you know it isn't some throwaway track or something like that that they bury at the end of this it's a purposeful statement absolutely right it did well for them I mean it helped them get in I think the top five in England and top maybe 30 in America the I know what I like in your wardrobe was a hit you know got up in the charts in England didn't do a whole lot in America necessarily another track worth checking out is Deja Vu I guess it's a song that Hackett had worked on during this time but didn't quite finish it Uh, and 
obviously there's no space, there's nowhere to put it on this record. Uh, but when he did his Selling England by the Pound years a couple years ago, he was playing it. Uh, and I do have it on, on disc with Nad Sylvan kind of singing the, the Peter Gabriel style. I don't know, because when he did an album called Genesis Revisited in I think 1996 or so, and it was on there. I don't know how much of that was done back in 73, how much he added later. But it, it sounds good. It fits in with all this. Obviously, Steve has made it into something that's very special for him, but um, you know, it, it, give it a listen. I mean, I you know, it, it fits in well with the rest of these. The only problem is after you listen to an hour-long ra- album, do you have more for Twilight Ale House? Do you have more for Deja Vu? But you know me, I always want to hear the B-sides, I want to hear the outtakes, I want to hear the stuff that didn't make the record that is of the era, because if it's a great record, that means the stuff you didn't use is probably pretty good too. Yeah, and, and, and it could just be a time issue on this thing, and, and it is cool because it's like if you, especially if you like all of these tracks, it's like a hidden gem that you find, oh hey, I like this too. So yeah, it, it is cool, and I am glad that, that Steve still carries the torch because it it is in his wheelhouse to to actually be a player uh, and, and to keep these songs alive. And there is a there's still a a big demand for this. I mean, he tours like you said all the time. People still pay to see this show. They want to hear this music. Yeah, and there's a dozen or so what I consider to be decent tribute bands because people want to hear this stuff. And like I said, Genesis has toured once in 30 years. Well, if you want to hear Genesis music played, you're not going to get it from Genesis. So you have to get it somewhere. Steve Hackett is a great option because he is authentic. He still plays just as well as he ever did. He's got a great tight band around him. But people want to want to see it. And, you know, for years and years, everyone's been hoping, will there ever be some kind of original Genesis reunion? Maybe not a huge tour, but could you get together and do two nights at Wembley or two nights at the O2 and just do Land Lies Down on Broadway or just do, you know, you do Selling England by the Pound in its entirety and do the other kind of Gabriel era stuff because so many people would like that I mean think about it man when those five last tour together I was one and you were two you know yeah I didn't I didn't make it to any of these shows I didn't make it and we're almost 50 you know so it's not just us there's a lot of people who never had the chance to do that but the fact of the matter is because of the way business works and the way all these guys are set up now financially the guys in Genesis don't need that the fans may want it but the three Collins Banks and Rutherford they don't need it. Peter Gabriel doesn't really need it either. And, and it might be a good payday for Steve Hackett, but he lives very well. It's not like he's hurting or anything. And, and he's got plenty to do anyway. And I was hoping, praying, Jackson, because I do still have tickets at great expense to see Genesis in the O2. It's been pushed back a couple times. Right now it's on for September. Everything in the summer has been postponed to 2022. But right now, Genesis is on in, in September. So I'm like, okay, Hackett's around. Maybe he could come. Just come on for Firth of Fifth. Come on for a couple of songs. But he's got his own tour going on at the same time in England. I'm actually supposed to see him about three weeks later, like a 2300 seater. So I just, I don't think it's, I don't think it's ever going to happen. Hackett always says it's not because of me that it doesn't happen. And and the fact of the matter is because Phil Collins physically can't play the drums anymore. I, I think he's got some back and nerve issues. 
Not to mention he's 70, he's gained weight. A lot of drummers have to be replaced once they hit 60. He's not going to have Peter go out there and sing songs, have the other three guys out there and him sitting in the wings saying, yep, that's my band, don't they sound good? No, it, it's just, it's never, it's never ever going to happen. Yeah, it, it, you're right. They're, the money is not, a, is not an issue. They've all got a ton of cash. I think if they were going to do this, it would be such a massive rehearsal because you can't just, oh yeah, we'll just, we'll just do that tonight. Right. No, I mean, this this would take a lot of rehearsal. It would take a lot of time to do this. So yeah, I, I don't think so. And the other thing too is, what if it didn't come off? That's the last thing that they would want is they tried and they just don't have it anymore to play this music. So I think as much as yes, as much as we would love to see that, obviously Steve Hackett could do it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. He's got he's he's rehearsed. He's still a phenomenal player. He could do this. The rest of the guys, yeah. Why, why would I even want to? I, I I've got too much money. Right, and hopefully when this tour goes off, both in in England and in America, they'll have plenty more at those ticket prices. They they'll have plenty of money. <laughs> trust me. But I you know I can't wait to see it. I really hope it happens this year. We'll see. Obviously, I'll talk about it on the show if and when it happens. But you know, until then, I'm just glad that we eventually found this man because it's yeah. it, it's not something that they played on American radio. It's it's not something you ever would have found unless you did some research or you know had somebody show it to you. And you know, I had I don't know what I have 12, 13, 1400 records before I ever had Selling England by the pound, you know. So I, I wonder what it would have been like had I found it when I was younger. Like, where would I be now in my musical understanding? Who knows? Yeah, but but it is it is cool to, and this is just me talking now, to step outside your comfort zone and to say. It, this, this is very dense. You're not going to get it on the first listen. But if you say to yourself, okay, I'm going to listen to the whole thing start to finish. And then when I'm done, I'm going to think about it a little bit. And then I'm going to listen to it again. And then as you listen to it again, you uh, okay, I hear what's going on here. I'm picking up a little more. You maybe get a little more of the lyrics. Maybe you've got the dictionary this time in front of you so you can look up those words that you didn't know before. But yeah, this is really cool. I think that the Genesis, the 80s on Genesis is not anything like this. If you can put yourself in this mindset, you will be happy that you did because this is a fantastic record. Thanks for listening to our take on the Genesis classic Selling England by the Pound, a triumph of prog rock and English rock, and really allowing these incredible musicians to really go all out, show what they've got, show what they can do, and make a statement that is worthy of their talent. Of course, not long after that, they decided to make The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, which is an epic double album and really a an incredible story and an incredible live show, but one that broke the band as Peter did do all the lyric writing for it and the concept for it, and eventually that also kind of burned him out in a way and made him realize, I don't need this band from my high school days anymore. I can go out and do my own thing. So we hope you like it, but we need to know, did we get something right? Did we get something wrong? Did we miss the point? Please, you've got to tell us. Tweet us at ugly underscore werewolf or at actionjack72 and let us know which albums or bands you want to hear about. Next week, we're going to showcase another English artist, actually English-Canadian, and that's the all-time great singer Paul Rogers. 
you know, from Free with his breakout hit All Right Now, Bad Company, The Firm with Jimmy Page, and his time in Queen. He's done an amazing career. He's had all sorts of songs, sold over a hundred million records around the world, yet still somehow does not get the recognition that he deserves. Uh, and so we're going to tell you about why we like him and why we think he deserves to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So until next time, you can check out all our old episodes at www.uglyamericanwerewolf.libsyn.com. And for all you rock and rollers all over the globe, be cool and stay safe. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.